Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast. Our guest today is a twin and strangely enough after today's podcast we'll have interviewed them both. Born in 1966 he has served as the MP for North Antrim since 2010 general election. Previously he was a member of Northern Ireland Assembly from 1998 until 2010. He's a member of the DUP and is the party's justice spokesperson. His late father founded the DUP and his twin brother Kyle reliably informs me that he's a smarter, funnier and better looking one. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome Ian Paisley. How are you keeping Ian? I'm keeping very well. It's the kind of thing my brother's always said about me, but maybe he's saying it about himself. <laughs> Who knows? No, as I say, he reliably informed me he's a better looking one, but sure, listen, opinions differ. <laughs> Absolutely. It's as well this is audio. <laughs> a face for radio, isn't that right? A face for radio, yes, that's very true. Well, I, I won't agree with you, but maybe in my case. <laughs> Ian, today is Thursday the 8th of April. If your late father was still alive, he'd have been 95 two days ago on the 6th of April. Could you tell me about Ian Paisley, the founder of the DUP, the founder of the Free Presbyterian Church, father, husband, leader, charismatic and often divisive figure? Uh, yes, he was uh, many, many things, probably a very complex individual. Um, but then most interesting people are very complex and um, have various uh, different sides to them. I mean, the, the side of the fundamentalist preacher uh, is is the one which obviously is an early uh, my most early years the one which I, I grew up with and had a, a big impact on me but the side of the fundamentalist preacher was an, an outside view the inside view was that of a loving father of I only ever regarded him as that um, we have probably about 40 years of difference in our age and yet over the years not only was I his baby son but grew to be um, ultimately his advisor and his right hand man Mm -hmm. in the political realm and um I, uh, I you know became a confident and his friend and certainly in, in the last 10 15 years of my dad's life i regarded the two of us as very good mates mm -hmm. beyond father and son so very very complex uh, individual but um incredibly loving dad um very supportive father um person who gave you space to do your own thing and, and would always be a, a, an act of encouragement and if you were doing things which he was interested in, say, for example, books, my father had a huge book collection, was an avid reader, uh, loved books. And if you were engaging with him about literature or stories or books or biographies, that's when he really became alive and really his, his eyes twinkled about. That's a very, very good point. But did, did you read this particular book? So, for example, if I was doing some work on an historical figure and I'd read a couple of biographies, he would then find you three or four other ones that he had read and find them interesting from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. and his his knowledge of literature and his knowledge of of, of, of books and, and history was absolutely fantastic and uh, uh, he always asked the awkward question and he always encouraged me he says don't read stuff that you agree with read the stuff that you disagree with and then find the arguments against it that's a very so good he, point it was very uh, you know very inducing you know very very encouraging that way to you know don't don't affirm your views you, you should know what you believe but you know go and, and check that your views can stand up to scrutiny by reading alternative points of view so very much that way i mean but i remember my dad as a, a keen footballer in our front garden with my brother and me 
Uh, and, uh, you know, two against one was, was the only way we could beat them um, <laughs> at, at football. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, but uh, and he, he, he had great fun with us. I mean, Saturday mornings when we were very young would have been spent early on a Saturday morning coming down I'm watching a Western, the Bonanza, I think it was called, was yes. like a regular series. On our Unfortunately, television. I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> you remember that as well. The music still reminds me, it brings me back 40 years. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, so very, very happy memories of that as a, a very protective, loving father. Um, beyond the household, he was a very, very different person, you know, and I, and I accepted that. You know, he, he had a very hard task to do to try and hold his community together and lead his community that was very divided uh, in itself and he also had um you know uh, uh in the political realm that was very much the case uh, in the religious realm i saw him very much as a pastor and i think his pastoring came out most for me that he he always was able to extend the hand to to show lovingness and kindness to people and and their when they were at their absolute worst and whether they were coming into the political surgery to seek advice when they're at their wits end about something uh, in their community or whether they were at their wits end about their soul and about their their future uh, uh, you know and, and about their, their their trouble with um sin as he would call it mm-hmm. you know i saw a man who was a pastor at heart and a loving pastor and a caring pastor and i think that's the point which always speaks most for me because he could turn any situation around in terms of, of that you know uh, if, if he wanted to and, and, and several occasions did I'm I'm just thinking like obviously you know this is the first time you and I spoke I had the pleasure of speaking to your twin brother Kyle and not that long ago but just I suppose like like everybody looking into your household it seemed to be like a very it must have been so chaotic like people calling 24 7 and as you rightfully said Ian there with your father's role in the political life and then his pastoral duties you know he was a man that wore many different hats you know, our, our house was an open door. Um, there was always people staying with us, um, and that could be either visiting clergy, or politicians, or um, people who who my father said this 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 family here is broken down. This person needs help. There was always a spare room. There was always someone staying. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, uh, and being an open door, I suppose, yeah, you are actually kind of in a, in more than a goldfish bowl. It is like an open book. So you're absolutely authentic. You know, so you can't put that on for a, a show period. It yeah. just it literally was who you had to be. And you had to just, uh, I mean, I was the youngest of five growing up in, in, in our house. So a twin brother and a sister who's just over a year older than us. Uh, so we were like triplets running around, mm-hmm. really. And then a two older sisters, distance of about nine or ten years between us. And very, very close family, but um, one which um, I suppose just understood that our mum and dad, my mum was very much part of that team, you know, she yeah. was in elected politics as well in the Belfast Corporation. And we just understood that our parents had these public roles and they played them. And that was very much seen as service and public service to your community. And um, was there anyone else to say and do these things? Well, if there was, at least my parents were standing up and playing their part in their, in their community. They say in behind every great man is an even greater lady, and you referenced your mother there. Do you know she she was she the glue that held everything together, and and potentially even uh, the unsung hero of your house? Would would that be a fair assessment? 
Um, I, I think, um, yeah, look, there's, there's an old saying, you know, the, the man is the head of the house, but the, but, the, but the woman is the neck. The neck turns the head anyway at once. Yes, <laughs> very good. There's definitely an element of that. You know, my, my mum was, was, was always always there, you know. I mean, whilst my dad could go and was away and sometimes was away for long periods of time and um, was also incarcerated during my childhood. Uh, my mum had to be there 24 how, 7. How long was he incarcerated for? 1966 for six months, 1969 for three months, and again in 1980 for a week. So, do, um, do you mind talking me through the, the first, second and third um, episodes, shall we call them? Um, yeah, very young, obviously, for the first one. second one, definitely remember. remember visiting my, my, my father. I was about four years of age. And um, still to this day, when I go up the Crumlin Road, it gives me the EBGBs. <laughs> uh, seeing that big prison gate. Um so, so it probably had a bigger impact than my sisters, who were at really formative years, yeah. you know, and could understand what was happening. Uh, and big, big impact on them, I think, on 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 uh, their 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 viewpoint. Um, but you know that you know that's part of the tapestry of, of, of the life that I grew up in, which um, I think helped make me the person I am as well to understand these things and to recognise that you know if you do take a stand. That, has a cost. Um, and, and briefly, detail, um, what, what was he in jail for? The first, or the sorry, the second time, the time that you can remember? I think it was refusing to sign a bail bond that he would be bound over to keep the peace. Right. Um, civil disobedience, essentially. Right. Um, and uh, he, he, by signing a bail bond, he would effectively have been silenced for about, um, for a year that he wouldn't have been able to, he thought, effectively publicly speak out. Yes. And at the time, and in those years, whenever Northern Ireland was in a very, very difficult situation, and he was giving voice to the frustrations of loyalist working classes mm-hmm. and challenging the unionist aristocracy as it was, and at the same time also standing up the republicanism, he said he could not be silent. Mm-hmm. And uh, he took a stretch for that. Mm-hmm. There you go. I, I actually forgot about that one. Ian, after your father passed away, and I must stress here, this is only my personal observation about you, I thought your tone, actions and body language oozed outreach to others. I thought, I suppose, you were very measured, understanding, and seemed like you were reaching out the hand of friendship more than usual. Can I put it like that? Um, it's nearly like you took on your father's role in his later years. How would you respond to that? Can I say, I think it's a very kind thing to say. It's a very kind observation. Um I, I there, there, there's a but coming, but <laughs> no, no, there isn't. I, I, I just try to be me. Um, and I, I, I'm a great believer in that little phrase, and uh, that, that um, you know, if if you repeat the mistakes of the past, you haven't actually learned from the past. And I, I try to even take out my own life. But if you've made mistakes in your own life, or if you've seen mistakes being made by your community, learn from them. Don't repeat them and get the same result. Learn from them. Lift from them and take them forward. And I, I certainly believe that I um, stretching out the hand of forbearance isn't actually hard. Stretching out the hand of forbearance and, uh, uh, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, actually does much more for you as an individual than it does for the people you're stretching out the hand to. And is much more honest. And I, I have a difficulty. I, I like to be very honest with people. I am very direct. It stereotypes me sometimes then as being very um, severe. 
uh, because that, that directness can provoke a, a reaction. But I try to be honest and direct in what I do. And if, if I do believe that my side is doing something wrong, I'll put it in those stark terms, say it. But at the same time, I do believe that I can and hopefully can give leadership to my community. I don't think I'm a lesser person by being nice to my neighbour. I actually think I'm a better neighbour and therefore I'm a better person mm-hmm. for doing that and, and better at myself. Even if I get nothing back from it, mm-hmm. I've done the right thing. And you should always try to do the right thing, no matter what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I do try to shatter that stereotype from time to time because I am, I know I'm perceived as a particular stereotype and it's in the interest of certain media circles to have that. Um um, and so being able to actually say, well, I can go further than that. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have to prove to anyone in my community that I'm a super Protestant. I don't have to prove to anyone in my community that I'm a super loyalist. Uh, I don't have to prove to anyone I'm amused. I am all of those things. Um, and uh, therefore, I have nothing to prove. Um, and uh, uh, take that as it is. That means that I think I can be um, and t- try and lead by example and try to be outreaching to the other community mm-hmm. and to my neighbour, who may be my enemy. Um, and I just hope that uh, my own community gets that and gets the logic of that. And more importantly, that my neighbour understands that that is genuine. Ian, I suppose I, I mentioned that because, you know, it, I, I was listening, like like we all do, to the news and radio stations, and you were on it quite a bit after your father passed away. And as I say, I thought your tone and whatnot, you know, it... I don't mean to be insulting by this, and I hope you accept that. I thought there was a marked change in you, and I guess that's what I mean, is that you seem to be, you know, more measured and more calm in your response. And even I I heard you speak on the radio once, I think it was the William Crawley show, about legacy issues, and, you know, you were suggesting that, you know, Republicans, um, maybe if there was a, you know, they were shot um, while on active service and stuff, that you were advocating that they deserved a, a full hearing the same way as anybody else. And and I, I suppose that's the, the aspect that I was coming from. But I must say, I, I think then, I don't know, in later years, maybe that for a lot of my community, that you maybe reverted back to what we would call back to type. <laughs> but you mentioned there about your own community is that is that, you know, you, if you believe there's an injustice, you will say it. Have you ever got any blowback from your own community, for as they would say it, going too far towards the other side? Um, well, well, let me come to that in a minute. In terms of the tonal change, I think I, I will go slightly further and I will say this. I think any person who has been brought up in a close family and someone much wiser than me once said, um, when you lose your father, that's when you ultimately grow up. Mm-hmm. And I think there is an element of that, that whenever the generation passes on, uh, I mean, you, you, if, if it doesn't change in some way, if it doesn't bring out something else in you in another way, then maybe you haven't really, um, you know, understood that, you know, that, that passed up of a generation. And I think that definitely did have an effect on me. Uh, of, of that, there is no doubt. Um, I hope I've continued to be um, that, that honest person. Um, the, the idea that I, I referred to type, I, I think it, it is easy to point that probably at anyone. Yeah. Um, um, the, the issue, have I got blowback from my own community? I always regard that sort of challenge as fear from my own community. And fearful, because like, you know, you, you'll get the, look, understand what you were trying to say, you're doing the right thing, but I wouldn't have done that. You know, that's because you're a card. 
you know, you actually have the leadership is actually about taking that step out and saying, let's not follow the crowd, let's lead the crowd. Mm-hmm. And a lot of politicians that I know, and this is across the piece, a lot of politicians are not leaders, they're followers. And they believe in followership. Mm-hmm. They assess where the crowd's going and then try to get in front. Mm-hmm. I think the important thing about leadership is actually be with your crowd, but be in front of them and say, this is where we're going. It might be difficult to understand, but this is ultimately where we're going to get to mm-hmm. if, if you follow this particular strategy. And sometimes that is missing from the calculations that politicians uh, uh, do make. Um, but I hope I, I, I still am, uh, in those very flattering terms, that outreaching person. I do try to be that person. Ian, your father and Martin McGuinness, rest in peace, them both, became good friends in the end. That said, a lot about your father's Christianity, I guess, in terms of being able to love your neighbour, regardless of differences. Do you think that type of Christianity is missing in society today, as it sometimes feels the division between both communities is as prominent as today as it ever has been at any time over the past 40 years? And I suppose, what role do politicians like you have to play in terms of reaching out, embracing Irishness, even coming from your perspective? Yeah, um, that was Christ's to love thy neighbour. And it's also the, the, it's the easiest one to say, but the toughest one to fulfil and love thy neighbour as thyself. I mean, you, we, we're all vain people, ultimately. Uh, we all are vain about our own egos. And we all, um, um, in, in the quietness of our own hearts, think that we're all great. Um, and if that's how we think of ourselves and to love our neighbours to that same extent, that's really to love your enemy, to like that, think that they're actually great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to understand that they get into Christ's shoes and understand what it is. Yeah, sorry about the interference, folks. There's um, just a, a slight dodgy connection here on this Zoom call. Sorry, Ian, you were saying about um, loving thy neighbour. Yeah, no, lo- loving thy neighbour is a tough commandment. It's a tough instruction. And to love them as yourself is even tougher. Um, uh, and, and I think that, that that is really the way Christians should behave. I mean, we're all Christians on this island, practically. We're a very, very small minority of people who wouldn't regard themselves and, and coming from a Christian background of some form. And I think that the ethos of our Christianity should be about understanding each other, being able to empathise with each other, put each other, put ourselves in each other's shoes and understand our points of view. It's not about then bowing down and accepting an alternative point of view, but it's at least understanding it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that is a huge challenge for us all in our life, let alone in our political life. And if there was call yourselves a Christian country and to not live by those Christian principles calls into question our Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, therefore, we, we we should reflect on that and say, well, how can we then be better Christians mm-hmm. by understanding each other and talking to each other, working with each other, and hopefully uh, working for outcomes that are shared? I mean, mm-hmm. let, let's take a, an issue that affects us all, poverty, mm-hmm. um, underachievement of young people. You know, it's our Christian duty to help lift that society up and to lift them out of poverty. It's our Christian duty. So what are the things we can do politically or socially or even personally to help achieve those things? Uh, and, you know, that, that to me is a, is, is a challenge of real gritty politics, mm-hmm. what we should be at. The stuff that we see in our television set is the, excuse me for using the phrase, but it's the sexy stuff that the media want. Exactly. It's, it's, it's that stuff behind the scenes that is really 
where, where, where we, we can make the difference in our society. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ian, I suppose you were in a unique position um, watching the relationship between Martin McGuinness and your father develop. What, what was your assessment of that? You know, I suppose looking at your father, you know, 40 years ago and then looking at him, you know, five years before he passed away, you know, he certainly seemed to mellow and um, that isn't a criticism. Obviously, that's a compliment. And what was the relationship like between himself and Martin McGuinness from your perspective? Yeah. Well, go remember, my father was in his 80s uh, when he became First Minister of Northern Ireland. And one thing my dad was always able to use in his charisma was who and what he was and his persona. And so when he was a young, um, articulate firebrand, he was able to use that. Uh, as he became older, he was a wily old fox. He knew how to use that. Oh, I'm tired, Martin. You know, you've got to, you know, and he was able to, to use that as a strength. Yeah. And I, I and. The one thing and the one compliment I always give Martin McGuinness, Martin McGuinness was always very deferential towards my father. I mean, Martin was, what, 20 years younger than him? He never exploited um, any, say, advantages that he may have had. That um, the, I think the two of them did recognise from day one if they wanted to make a difference, if they wanted to stamp a change on the country for the good, that they would have to really genuinely work as a partnership. Mm-hmm. And they had that conversation. I was privy to that conversation. Okay. And um, it was an honest conversation between two effectively elder tribe leaders. He said, we can make this work or we can break it. Mm-hmm. Let's make it work. And Ian, that's exactly the date that was done. Ian, did, did, in terms of your father, did he make it work too well from people within his own community? I think there was definitely an element uh, of jealousy. You know, oh, look, look, we want what he has. Uh, he's now created the circumstances that we can't have it. Um, let's take it off him. Mm. And so there's definitely an element of, but that's politics. I mean, you know, uh, in the man eat man world, world of politics, uh, to me, I, I put that down as political ambition. And that's everywhere in politics. It where, is. But, um, but Ian, from, from my point of view, I'm trying to place myself in your shoes here as being, you know, obviously. Ian, senior son, is that he created the DUP. He was the founder of it. And for me, you know, and I, and I sincerely mean this, there was something very disappointing and nearly sad about the way that he was eventually, um, and, and this may be the wrong word I'm using, but ousted from, from, from both his political party that he founded and his church, the Free Presbyterian Church that he's founded. And like, you know, it, it really was, for me, well, obviously, I'm not a member of the DEP or the Free Presbyterian, but still, as a human being, it, it was it was unpleasant viewing, shall I say? It was, uh, and there, there's 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 no mistake about that. It was hurtful. It was hurtful to him, and I know it was hurtful to my mother and to our family at, at, at that level. Uh, um, but again, I say a lot of this is politics. Mm. Um, it's it's the unfortunate dirty game that is played around politics. I actually think the greatest loser in all of that was unionism, mm-hmm. was my party. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly was the church that he mm-hmm. served and founded mm-hmm. and ultimately had a repercussion on the country. I think another 12 months of laying that foundation stone in place mm-hmm. between our communities under his direction and with the support of his party, couldn't do it without the support of his party, would have really set a new calibration for North Atlantic to go forward even stronger. I mean, with 10 really good years, we could have had 20 or 30 really good years. 
you know, without the upsets that have subsequently come about. And, um, you know, all because people were eager to say, I'd like what he has. I can have what he has. <laughs> and, you know, what was 12 months of time when you consider it? Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the, the message that, that I'm getting from you here, um, you know, is leadership. And leadership, you know, in your father's behalf and also Martin McGuinness's behalf, they kind of set the tone for everyone else to follow. And I suppose, you know, is that leadership here today from any quarter? I think with hindsight, um, history is going to be very kind, certainly to my father, um, in terms of what it could have been. And that's largely because of his demonstration, his ability at the end of his, uh, in the latter years of his life, to take all of what he had and turn it into a positive leadership and to get a result from that. There's absolutely, in my view, there's no doubt about that. And he, I think it was Ken Reid, the just retired head of UTV News, said that it was the seminal moment in all his years of reporting to see that change. Mm -hmm. And Ken knew my father very well. He's actually a constituent, grew up in Ballymena. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he he, he had all of that that baggage as well, Ken. Um, In terms of, uh, you know, the, the... our, our, our country and, and the future and, and future leaders look i think everyone looks to the past through a certain lens um and they always do see the, the really good stuff um i'd say there's lots of people to them in the tory party in england who look back to maggie's halcyon day people couldn't wait to get rid of her in 1992 mm-hmm. which was probably at her prime and could have taken the country in another four years I think, I think this is the, the thing about leadership. Whenever people are doing very well, there's also those people around them who say, oh, I, I want a piece of that and, and I could do better and are always able at the time to point to the flaws. But it's only in the future when they look back and they say, well, well actually, um, maybe we should have judged that situation and what happened differently. And of course, you always do look back differently in the past. You, you do look at it through a, a bifocal or through a tinted glass, which maybe gives it a different perspective. Than if you actually lived it, yeah. Um, but that that is that is just nature of life and the nature of politics. Well, and uh, you know we, we we need to probably say you know to our current leaders, uh, that they have to actually really lead for the time. Um, uh, you know uh, that they have these circumstances that they're now dealing with, um, and they really have to have the courage to actually lead through that. Um, but they also have to bring. You there? But, uh, yeah, I lost you for 10 seconds. You were saying, Ian, about our current leaders have right. to lead. Yeah, have to lead and have to bring the, their communities with them and bring this community with them. And that is a tough, tough ask. I mean, leadership is the loneliest place in the world to be. Mm-hmm. When you're asked to lead any organisation or certainly a political party or a country, you might think that you're surrounded by people, mm-hmm. but you're actually alone. Ian, tell me this. What prompted you to obtain an Irish passport? I, I actually don't have an Irish passport. Oh, I thought you did. Um, no, no, I, what I did do and what I said, I made a comment once that I'm more than happy to help my constituents, no matter what their background, to obtain Irish passports because it's their right to have it. Oh, and okay. it's a very, I think I used the term, very, it's a very useful travel document. I thought I seen you tweeting out a photograph once of you holding up an Irish passport. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'll tell you what that was. I was going through the check-in. I was going through the check-in tunnel with um, a chap. The chap in front of me was 
me, Ian Og, how are you? And I says, how are you? And I chucked my British passport down <laughs> into the bin that was going through to be checked. Yes. And hit his Irish one was in the bin that was being checked through the security thing. And when they came out, I left at his Irish one and my British one, and we <laughs> held them up, and I we did a, a picture. I went, which one's who, you know? Oh, and right. everyone then, they thought, oh, he's got an Irish passport. It was a bit of humour. Um, I see. But I'll tell you one thing, I've no objection. I've no objection to people using them and having them. They're a very, very useful travel document. Yeah. And uh, my, my suggestion is, that especially those people who travel to the Far East and the Middle East in particular, it's useful to have both. And yeah. uh, uh, th- that's uh, just a benefit. I would encourage people, if they're entitled to it, they should t- take every benefit they're entitled to. Yeah, yeah. How do you introduce or describe yourself, Ian, when travelling abroad? Do you refer to yourself as British, Irish, Northern Irish, or dare I say, used to be European? <laughs> well, I've never ever felt European or described myself as European. I, I think anyone who does play that card are, are deluded. Everyone is from somewhere, you know what yeah. I mean? And, and roots are usually very local. Now, I, I always say I'm, I'm, I'm from Northern Ireland, or uh, I mean, uh, I... I, I Task myself, I am British. I mean, I'm British by birth and British by right and British by birthright. But I, uh, I always see myself as a person from Northern Ireland, very proud of this part of this island. <clears throat> do, you, do you think terminology and language is important? Or, you know, obviously it can oh, be oh, yes. de- divisive as well. Look, of course it's divisive, but it's incredibly important. And I, I never try to be dismissive of a person, how they identify themselves. You know, I mean, if a person wants to identify themselves as a Tyrone man or a person wants to define themselves as an Irish man from Tyrone or a Brit from Tyrone, they're entitled to do that. Hey, there's no there's no Brits from Tyronean. (laughs) Hey, listen, my grandfather was a Tyrone man. Just be careful. Sorry, my great grandfather was a Tyrone man. Very good. So, uh, you know, there's thrown blood and there's thrown blood on me, son. That's good. Delighted to hear it. We'll we'll keep working on you. (laughs) Ian, (laughs) do you feel your current leader, Arlene Foster, still has the support of the party members and in particularly the men in grey suits, to quote Maggie Thatcher? Uh, yeah, we, we don't have men in grey suits um, and, and the, the UK, they're usually in jeans and things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yes, she does. Um, that, that, that's the bottom line. Arlene was, was elected by the Electoral Council uh, of, of the party and there's never been a challenge or even a hint of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been criticism. And I think that that goes with the territory. Um, but uh, Arlene Foster is the leader of the party, and in my view, is the leader for the foreseeable future. I don't think or any credible challenger. Do, do you see yourself someday following in your father's footsteps, Ian, and becoming leader of the party? Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I've always viewed myself that um, my ambition was to be a member of parliament for North Antrim mm-hmm. and to play a role within my community. And I think I've got significant influence and uh, can help push the party and direct the party when need be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't feel that is an ambition that I want. It's always been said that that's where I want to go, but mm-hmm. uh, very frankly, I'm very, very comfortable and very, very content with the lot that I've been given in life. Ian, how likely do you think it is, and I accept that that's down to our electorate, but would you be comfortable if Michelle O'Neill, a Republican, became First Minister after next year's Assembly elections? Well, well, you're absolutely right to say it's down to the electorate, and it's, it's up to the electorate to be won or lost on, on that call. Um, 
And if, if the zero sum leads to a Republican being the first minister of Northern Ireland, I actually put that onto the shoulders of unionists, not to be divided. If they don't want that outcome, then don't be divided. They've, they've got to unite and they've got to campaign to ensure that unionism predominates. Now, that's because, not out of some delusion that I think we should... Um, uh, you know, dominate. But I do believe that unionism is better for this island. I think that nationalism is a very narrow place to be. Um, and I'll, I'll quote Billy Connolly, if, if, if you allow me. Was, Billy Connolly once said that if the, if the strongest point of, of a person's ideology is that they just want to be a nationalist, it's a very narrow ground to live on. Being a, in his view, being a professional Scot is not something that he wanted to, to be. And I, I say the same to people in Northern Ireland, being a professional Irish person is not where I actually want us to be. I want us to be and enjoy the fruits of the union, which is much more pluralistic and much more open and allows us to be uh, a stronger economy and allows us to have different opportunities that are not available if we were just a single unitary state. Well, I suppose, speaking from the shared Ireland's perspective, which is the only perspective I can speak from, Ian, is being uh, a nationalist um, is not something that is my end goal. My end goal is to live in a shared Ireland, um, one that obviously I'm sure you and I and every right-minded person can agree on, one that benefits us all, regardless of political aspirations, religion or anything else. And I suppose I and others, as you would imagine, see that as being if we have one island singing um, the one song, for want of a better word, um, and I'll use, I suppose, COVID as an example, where we have two jurisdictions on a very small island and, you know, potentially coming out with, with different restrictions. For example, if you lived along the border areas where you have to traverse each day into the south and come back to the north, where, you know, um, it can be, you might have to adhere to different regulations. And I suppose all that does is create uncertainty, creates confusion. And if we cast our minds back to the foot and mouth disease years ago, where the island had one approach, we combated that very swiftly uh, before it even potentially had a time to, you know, kick in properly. So, you know, we had become an it from the approach, Ian, is that one economy, one police force, one education system, one infrastructure is, is a more pragmatic approach. How would you respond to that? Yeah, but ultimately, someone has to pay for this. Uh, and, and this is the bottom line. Like, ultimately, someone, and the, the tax take from the entirety of the island is not sufficient to pay for it and to pay for our ambitions. And Europe, Europe has decided, or the people of the Republic of Ireland have decided they wish to be part of the European Union and that uh, there's benefits, they believe, for the, the island in that. And Northern Ireland, as being part of the British Union, is part of the fifth largest economy of the world and benefits significantly as a result of that, I mean, it benefits in pound shillings and pence to the tune of about thirteen billion pounds a year. But Ian, with the greatest would, of would, respect, would, would be gone. With the greatest of respect, you do accept that we are reliant on whatever crumbs that the British exchequer, you know, gives us. You know, we have no, well, we have no control. I, I, I can't, I, I can't describe them as crumbs. Right. Okay. Um, in okay. The way, in the same way as Wales and Scotland cherish the Barnet formula. Well, 
Right. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, retract, I'll retract the word crumbs, but the point is still the yeah. same, that we're reliant on handouts from, from London, effectively. But, but see, I, I, I don't see myself, see, and this, this is the thing about being a Brit. I, I mean, I, I hear this all the time, you know, people saying, if Northern Ireland doesn't behave itself, you'll be put out of the union. Uh, the, the union isn't something that I can be put out of. The yes. union's mine. Yeah, of course, I um, accept and, that. And, and, you know, and, and, and it's about the, the, this notion that somehow... We're little English Englishers, or we're, we're the, the English have very kindly bestowed the union upon us. No, no, the union's mine as of right. Yes. And if anyone's leaving it, I'll be deciding. Of course. When I'm leaving it, but I won't be told how long it can stay. You oh know, no, 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 no. It has I, to I, have. And I'm not suggesting that. I was talking purely but on I, finances. I know you're not suggesting that now, but but it's something. It's something which I always like to to, to put out there. The people understand that that, that the union, it it, it, it it isn't a club that people are put in and out of it's a club it's it, it's an association of peoples who determine themselves to be unionist and therefore are integral to its existence and if northern ireland or scotland or wales was lobbed off it or decided to leave or whatever that dismembers the entirety and the strength of, of the union mm-hmm. and it, it has to be seen in that, that holistic way and mm-hmm. again even on the COVID argument I mean I, I agree with you that there were things which we could have been more joined up on um, certainly in terms of the distribution of the vaccines I, I know for a fact the Republic of Ireland would love to be more joined up with the UK in terms of how we've been able to distribute the actual vaccine and the success that Northern Ireland has, has had with that but, but ultimately those decisions are taken by legal and political jurisdictions and i believe that the legal and political jurisdiction of british of britain and the uk is better for northern ireland i would go so far as to say i would love to see the republic of ireland taking a decision to come into the commonwealth mm-hmm. to be another voice like india canada australia new zealand and play a part there in that economic union and that political union that has irish people together I, we would I, have a very strong voice in the Commonwealth of Nations. I, I, I'm going to use this maybe simplistic argument, Ian, but um, I, I'll, I'll use it all the same. If, if you have two cars at your household, um, you have double the insurance to pay. You have double the, the tax to pay. You have double the diesel or fuel to put in. You have double the MOT costs, the putting new tyres on. Um, so I suppose that's the point I'm coming from is that if you have if you have dual everything, it can't be the most economic and streamlined approach. So I, I think would it be you would agree with that, having one approach to most things is a more pragmatic way of going about things, no? Yeah, but but the organizing of peoples and, and countries is very different. I mean we we I mean Europe on, on that basis and the strength of that argument, um Europe should be a single country. Um, and we saw what hegemony did in Europe in the last century, the beginning of the last century and the century before that. It created a, 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 a an empire which then ultimately tried to take power and, and destroy peoples. I mean, identities were lost. I mean, the, the emperor of the, the Sapbergs and all the rest of it you know, was, was about, in my view, ultimately destroying Europe because they were taking away localized identities of the French, the Belgics, the, the Germans, the Austrians. Um, so, you know, just because it's a single island doesn't mean to say it has to be run in one particular uh, way. Um, there, there's, there, there's other island nations that have two countries on it, um, are smaller than, than us. I mean, Cyprus, for example, 
is a partition state, and it's two countries are on it, the Greek and the, the, the and the Turks. Um, uh, it may not be what a lot of people want, but it's a de fact of life, mm-hmm. and um, you know we 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 actually see that. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. If there's things which we can work on and cooperate on, and one of the biggest things that we've cooperated on has been the infrastructure of electricity and sharing electricity, mm-hmm. and creating a single electricity market. Um, that potentially is significant power, uh, uh, quite literally, for us. Mm-hmm. The other way which I would look at in terms of our, our green economy would be looking at sharing uh, the strength of hydrogen development on the island of Ireland mm-hmm. and uh, hydrogen power and the rollout of hydrogen um, equipment. Mm-hmm. That could be very, very powerful for the entirety of Ireland and importantly for the people, whether they're living in Northern Ireland's jurisdiction or in the Republic of Ireland's jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So the, the, there's things that have no doubt we should be, could be, and must continue to try and do together. And we shouldn't actually let the politics of I'm a nationalist or I'm a unionist get in the way of that, because I believe in in, this, in the view that uh, this is our island and we should be able to share it. Mm-hmm. And we should be able to get the maximum benefit out of it for all of our peoples, no matter what political jurisdiction they choose to live in. I'll, I'll maybe persuade you someday to go the extra mile. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, tell me this. Can you give me a sense of what being British means to you? Well, well, I suppose Britishness is about my identity. Um, you know, I, I feel British. I believe that I have a, that, that I, I look uh, to Britain for um, my identity, whether yeah. it's um, saying cultural things, whether it's in, in, in sporting things, whether it's in uh, terms of being uh, seeing myself as having a, a Scotch, English, Welsh, and Irish background that is all mixed into one it's that ability to be a, a, a eclectic mm-hmm. and to select what i think uh allow me to, to express my 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 british view mm-hmm. um i think that the biggest strength of, of britishness is that it isn't homogeneous mm-hmm. that it allows me to be a northern ireland person but at the same time to be as strong and fervent a brit mm-hmm. it also allows me uh, and affords me the opportunity that I can choose that I will cheer on the Irish rugby team and look forward to them beating the English at every given opportunity. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it gives me it gives me that singular that that, that, that view that isn't singular in outlook that it is eclectic. So, uh, so it's the same way as you know so, as the Scots love beating the English at every given thing, but I, I still believe that they and they do they sign up and join our army and will die for our country. So so we're unique in that sense. I think it is. I think it is a very unique, eclectic identity because whilst Britain is never described as a federation, it it effectively is a federation of nations that have come together and formed this strange and peculiar thing called Britishness that has ruled the waves. But but if if we are, and you agreed there that we are unique in that sense, well then, does that not explain why the protocol um, was put in place because we are unique? Um, well, I think we need to not mix our, our, our metaphors when we're talking about identity is one thing, but then to go on and talk about um, uh, u- unique political um, solutions for, for, for problems. I mean, I just think the protocol was unnecessary. I actually think look, for all the goods that come in to um, the island of Ireland from the rest of the world that pose a, a problem for the European single market, it's about 2% of all of our goods. And yet we are checking every single good that comes into the island of Ireland. I just think in terms of the spirit of cooperation and of sharing the island and of sharing the needs of the island, 
why, why should Northern Ireland have to be that proxy zone that checks every single good coming into the island of Ireland? When, 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 we, when we were part of the EU, we still had to carry these checks, but only did it in 2% of goods. Right. I, I just think it's, uh, and they were goods coming in from the rest of the world that were, that were a threat. I'll, 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 tell you, I'll tell you what we'll do, Ian, um, and I appreciate your time here, by the way, today. Um, so I'll, I'll try and make it brief. But we'll, we'll maybe start this conversation here, this aspect of it about the protocol and Brexit. Given what you know now, would you campaign for Brexit again? Oh, absolutely. Even absolutely. given, even given, mean, given the turmoil that it has created since? Well, listen, I, I'm not responsible for how badly the Brexit negotiations were handled and, and they, for, for bad outcomes. What I am entitled to do is say that I think the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is far better out of the EU. What has been a disaster has been that Northern Ireland has been lumbered with a protocol that many people thought would be light touch, and it's turned out to be hard touch and uh, aggressive. And it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, what? this can be actually fixed. Ian, and it uh, should be fixed because it's in our interest to fix it. Are you disappointed in Boris Johnson? And I suppose I'm referring here to the promises that he made, you know. Well, well, Boris made it, came to my constituency and made a promise to business people here. He used the words that, look, if you're given additional red tape as a result of uh, Brexit, you can bend the documents associated with it. Mm. Well, that, that's hugely disappointing because it's not true. You can't. We have to go through a massive um, regulatory check process now, which adds time. And as you know, in business, time is money. What's unionism? That, that's the who do This is a bureaucracy. What's this you... is a, a bureaucracy which is unnecessary. And as I said, I think, I think Northern Ireland is now carrying out something like of all of the European checks on goods carried out in all 27 member states of the European Union, Northern Ireland is responsible for over 20% of those checks. That is ridiculous. I mean, there's not as many checks. You know that there's a Russian border with the EU. There is not as many checks with the Russian border with the <laughs> EU. <laughs> and, and, you know, to me, this is ridiculous, given that whenever Ireland, and we're talking about less than 10 years ago, whenever the Republic of Ireland needed an economic bailout, it was the United Kingdom that gave it because we were good neighbours. I, I, so I, 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 I heard it was paid back. completely pay, unnecessary. Was that? Was I, think, I think it was paid week. back last week, yeah. It was paid back last week. I mean... But you know that that that's, that's the mark of a of a good neighbour that you know you will lend the money it was paid back, uh, and yet here we are our payback is that every single business whether it's run by a nationalist or a unionist or, or a person with no religious or political identity they're being punished by bureaucracy now bureaucracy in anyone's mind is a bad thing if I talk to farmers in Cork or if I talk to them in Cullybacke the last thing they want is government putting bureaucracy on how they manage their business. We've been given this massive set of bureaucracy just to prove a point um, uh, about um, Brexit. And I think that that's punishment for the people of Northern Ireland and for the people of the United Kingdom, which they shouldn't have to be taking. Ian, let's be honest here, and, I, and I'm assuming you're, you're a pragmatic, reasonable man. So you must accept that the protocol is a direct result of Brexit. No Brexit, no protocol. Isn't that correct? Well, there's been Brexit in the other parts of the United Kingdom, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and they didn't get a protocol. Northern Ireland, uh, a, a part of the United Kingdom, did get a protocol. But as we agreed and earlier, and that's because we're unique. Uh, no, but that's not why we got the protocol. The reason why we got the protocol was because of bad negotiations 
and I would say because of the threat of the return to violence. I mean, Leo Varadkar ran around the other European commissioners and handed them pictures of four kill military installations and said, this would come back if we don't have some sort of protocol in place. And if ever there were lies told to, to get the sort of outcome that would um, uh, result in a bureaucratic check of all goods coming into the island of Ireland uh, at the Larne and Belfast ports, Mr. Varadkar was personally responsible for doing that. And he has to take some responsibility for the chaos that is resulting now in Dublin port, where 50% of their business has been redirected to Northern Ireland. Ian, I mean, you... Dublin port is crying out at the present time for the impact of the protocol. And Northern Ireland is crying out for the impact of the protocol of goods coming from GB into Northern Ireland. In, in, 70% you, you, of you our trade is done with GB. You mentioned... And yet it's been interrupted. You, you mentioned taking responsibility there. People have to take responsibility. Do you and the DUP take any responsibility for this? I take responsibility for, for Brexit and for what I'm responsible for. But I oppose the protocol. I voted against it in 2019 when it was first muted. I warned the Prime Minister directly and in writing that this would lead to a nightmare. And uh, I did. I questioned the then Secretary of State of the Northern Ireland Select Committee and said, how would you feel if goods from Yorkshire were being having to be processed differently to go into London? And he said he wouldn't accept it. And I said, well, that's how Northern Ireland feels. And would you then change it? And he then used the words, it would be light touch. Well, it has been anything but light touch. And what we're asking for, and I, I'm, I'm the first to be pragmatic with this and say, look, there has to be some sort of recognition that the single market between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland being in the single market, Northern Ireland being out of the single market, there has to be some recognition of how that is checked. And there's different ways of doing it. But to say that the only way of doing it is by a hard and fast regime that is damaging all businesses in Northern Ireland, in my view, is just not uh, sustainable. And it will lead to problems, which we've already seen, both problems in terms of business problems, but also societal problems, where there's a, a disruption to the smoothness of this society. And the, the riots in Northern Ireland are not completely not unlinked with this feeling of discontent. So let's take away the symptom of that discontent and the reason for that discontent, the protocol, and we'll start to see a, a solution to, to the societal and economic problems. But I do take responsibility for Brexit. I have no problem. Mm -hmm. Brexit will ultimately be good for this part of the island. And Brexit ultimately brought about the protocol. Uh, as, as I've said, but it didn't bring about the protocol in England, Wales or Northern Ireland. Uh, sorry, England, Wales or Scotland. It only brought it about in Northern Ireland. And uh, that to me was grossly unfair. Northern Ireland did not need a protocol in the way that we've been given. But I suppose Northern Ireland's voice wasn't really listened to um, when the Brexit result was cast in because, as you're well aware, was it 55, 56% of people here voted to remain within the EU? So I suppose my point is, if her voice wasn't listened to then, why should it be listened to now? Yeah, but I have to, I have to take that analogy then to its logical conclusion. The majority of London voted against Brexit, um, but their voice was listened to. Um, uh, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the logical view is that, oh, uh, you were ignored because you didn't actually support uh, Brexit as a region. That that really, to me, isn't isn't the point. The, the point in this is that the whole of the UK should have left as one. And Northern Ireland, the 2%, 2.5%, of the United Kingdom's population has been treated disgracefully. We've got to fix that. And I, I face up to my responsibilities in trying to fix it. 
had pointed out ways to the Prime Minister how it could be fixed, both by invoking Article 16 and by lessening the grip and the bureaucracy around the protocol by only checking 2% of goods, which is what we were doing anyway, and which is acceptable for all other parts of, of the EU. I point again to the Russian border with the EU. Uh, and ours, I would suggest, is completely less problematic than that border. Uh, the Turkish border with the EU, ours is less problematic than that border. But yet we have been encumbered with 20% of all checks going on in the EU. It's just ludicrous. It doesn't make sense. And whether you are for Brexit or against Brexit, the protocol does not make sense and people should climb down off the totem of supporting something which doesn't work for business. Ian, when the DUP were kingmakers, I guess is the word I'm going to use, under the Theresa May government, do you regret now not potentially supporting Theresa more and this could have avoided potentially what you're experiencing today? Um, I, I don't believe we would have experienced that. And I, I said for these reasons, Theresa May couldn't persuade her own party of the pro she wanted a protocol for the whole of the uk <clears throat> so she would have had the whole of the uk facing a protocol issue um boris's solution was to reduce that to a protocol in northern ireland only um but theresa may couldn't persuade her own party to agree to her proposals having 10 votes from the dup would have just meant that she was 10 votes um closer to being able to achieve it, but she still had a massive gap of something like 80 or 90 of her own party opposed to her. So um, the, the real politic, no matter what the theory, but the real politic is that Theresa May couldn't get her solution through Parliament. She tried three times and she lost three times. And our votes for or against her would not have made a difference. Ian, was unionism hoodwinked by the Conservative Party? And I suppose a follow-on question for that, do you trust Boris Johnson? Well, well, there's a thing in politics about who do you actually ever trust <laughs> in any political situation. You have to, you know, when anyone goes around saying, oh, I trust who owns on, you know, it's almost making yourself a hostage to fortune. And, well, it's a, it's a very obvious question to ask. You know, it's one which, which can never actually be answered about who you trust in politics. I mean, do you trust Barack or do you trust Comey? Do you trust uh, Michal Martin? Uh, do you trust Michelle O'Neill? It's, it's one of those ones which is always going to provoke who can you trust? Yeah. The... What you can do is take a person at their word, mm -hmm. um, try and believe in their integrity. Mm -hmm. And if they let that down, well, I think they're exposed as not being able to be trustworthy on their word and not being able to have the integrity that they ought to have. And I think that's um, the, the balance that has to be made. Um, was Northern Ireland let down by, by um, the negotiations over Brexit? Yes, they certainly were. And uh, they had every opportunity throughout the negotiations to avoid the sort of arrangement we actually have. And let's face it, everyone said they didn't want a hard Brexit. Northern Ireland has been given the hardest of all Brexit because it's damaging Northern Ireland business. Mm -hmm. And anyone who says that they are pro-EU should be trying to make sure that business in Northern Ireland flows because the more business that's done in Northern Ireland, the reciprocal beneficiaries of that are actually people in the Republic of Ireland who currently trade about 6% of their trade with Northern Ireland. Okay, Ian, thanks for that. Just a couple of very quick last questions, if you don't mind. I accept, sure. you, don't, I accept you don't want this, and you probably will argue that it'll never happen. But in the event of a successful campaign by pro-unity voices, what would your biggest concerns be if it did happen? Um, if there was a, a United Ireland, I yeah. just think it would economically fail. 
um, I would fail all of the people. And one of the earlier questions that we had now was the issue of how do we address the needs of our community? The needs of our community are seen in poverty, are seen in getting achievement of making sure that there isn't unemployment. I'm very fortunate. My constituency is probably some of the best employment practices. So it sits regularly at about 3% unemployment. I don't want to see it climbing to 6% unemployment. I just fear that a unity Irish state that doesn't have the economic wherewithal or the economic connectivity with GB to um, generate wealth. Um, I remember a vast majority of the people of the Republic of Ireland, young people, rely on the fact that they can send their young people to England for jobs. If, if, if all of that becomes damaged in a, in, a, in a unitary campaign that says it's about us and us on our own, um, well, I think the English and, 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 and who are left and, and to manage the, the, the United Kingdom would basically say, well, our door's shut to you then. And and I don't want to have that situation. I want to have a situation where Northern Ireland flourishes and can flourish. Mm -hmm. Ian, what can pro-unity voices do or say to reassure you um, that in the event of unity, that your heritage, your culture, your sense of Britishness will be protected and will be given space to grow and flourish? Well, they would have to go a very long way because the sense of Britishness that was in the rest of Ireland um, after partition was diminished. I mean, 10% of the Protestant population were driven out of the free state. Um, and that was because they were British and because they identified as, 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 as Irelanders who were British. And uh, so the history in this isn't good. And I think there would be a, a view that, you know, have, has Ireland learned from its history? Mm -hmm. um, is it able to understand difference and tolerate mm -hmm. difference and tolerate uh, a large vociferous voice of unionists and Protestants? Because its past has shown that it actually drove a small voice of unionists and Protestants out of, of, of the what became the Republic of Ireland. So it would, it would have to go a long <laughs> way to actually proving that. Um, but I... I would say to them, you know, the biggest obstacle to Irish unity is um, the the fact that those advocating it have no answers to the big economic question of who would pay. Mm -hmm. I mean, whenever Germany reunified, the European Union didn't pay for it. Mm -hmm. Germany had to pay for the reunification of, Germ of Germany. Mm -hmm. is, is the Republic of Ireland seriously saying it is the economic ability to pay for the economic reunification of this island that but doesn't. I think, um, I th I no think Ian, with the greatest of respect, I think it would be given that the European Union would contribute, the Americans would contribute, there would be with, um, f this isn't the right terminology I'm using, but a, a phased withdrawal um, from, from Britain and pledging money to, you know, to support the economy for the first 10 years or whatever. Well, 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 now, now I, I must have to challenge the, the, the logic of this. Yes. I mean, we, we've got examples of where there were uh, divided states in Europe and they then became unit, unified. The biggest and strongest argument has to be Europe, has to be uh, Germany. Um, whenever the, the wall came down in Berlin, and West Germany said, we will now unite with East Germany. Not one euro not one penny of European money went into the reunification. But I project. think I think we're we're not and talking was, last year. Let me make the point. Yeah, yeah, but let me make the point. The, the the European the interests of the European Union are one hundredfold advanced by United State by a United Germany. 
the the benefits to the to the European Union of a unified Irish state are minimal by comparison, and yet Germany didn't get a penny. But Europe has already and said in an event of unity that we would have automatic re-entry back into the EU. So by that logic, I'm assuming that would also involve funding. But it doesn't. This is the point. To, to, to unite a state, so to create a, a unified Irish state in the way that a unified German state was created, the European Union said, that is your own political project. You pay for the unified German state. And Germany ended up paying to unite its own state. And it, it, it cost the West considerably. And uh, uh, hence why there was then a drive to, to look for the single European and single monetary uh, system of, of the EU to benefit Germany um, at, at the end. But, uh, I mean, the idea that, that the EU is going to stamp up regularly 12, 15 billion pounds a year to assist the Irish Republic uniting this state I just think that's cloud cuckoo land. At the minute, the, 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 the Republic of Ireland has to pay a billion pounds a year to be a member of the EU. Do they honestly think they're going to get 14, 13 billion pounds back to advance a political project? I just I just think it is not has not been thought out about how this is paid for. The idea that America will pay for it, can I just ask you this? How much money has America given to Northern Ireland directly to advance the Northern Ireland peace process, it's given nothing. And yet the, the advancing the peace process would have been of great advantage and has been of great advantage to the people of this island. But America gave nothing. In terms of jobs that Americans create in Northern Ireland, that's all one because American businesses will make money in Northern Ireland. And all of the American businesses in the Republic of Ireland are largely there because of the 12% corporation rate. None of that money goes to the Irish people. Hence, probably why we've seen a rise in Sinn Féin because of the discontent and the disconnect in that monetary system that's been created. So that this idea that there's these countries sitting around the world with huge deep pockets who will pay for an Irish political project, I just think it's cloud cuckoo stuff. There certainly needs to be more um, conversations. There needs to be more economic documents produced. And I suppose ultimately there needs to be more conversations, which I, I really appreciate the one that you're having with me today. Yeah. Ian, yeah. You, you mentioned there that um, when you were referring to um, Southern Protestants, there, there hasn't been a great track record. And I suppose that brings me on to this year marks 100 years since the partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. A couple of wee points here. Do you accept that all traditions didn't enjoy the same rights in the North for the first, I don't know, 60 years, 70 years? And all lived experiences here aren't the same? Absolutely. The country was born in turmoil. Um, the country was born at a point where it was probably going to plunge the entire island into civil war. Um, what ultimately resulted was, I suppose, a lesser crisis. It was obviously a civil war in the Republic of Ireland, which still informs politics today uh, there. But uh, certainly, yes, Northern Ireland did not have a, a um, celebrated start. It had a very troubled start. Um, and indeed, it was only to exist for the first seven years. And then to be assumed in the Council of Ireland, that didn't happen. It, uh, it grew as a, as a state within the United Kingdom. And uh, I believe, with the exception of the 40 years of troubles, which, let's be honest, didn't help relationships, um, Northern Ireland has actually shown that it can flourish. Its standard of living is 20% higher than the standard of living in the Republic of Ireland. 
um, its own employment is considerably lower. Averages about. But Ian, with with the greatest of respect, my question was, do you accept that all lived experiences here aren't the same? Oh, absolutely. Everyone's lived experience. I mean, my lived experience is different from my children's lived experience. And different from my brother's lived experience. Everyone's lived experience is unique. We're I suppose all... I'm I'm specifically referring to the nationalist population here uh, living under a unionist regime. Basically, do you accept that? Yeah, I I, I would. And I'd say that, that probably in different areas of Northern Ireland it was very different. So the the position probably of um, people living in in um, County Londonderry uh, as nationalists was very different from nationalists who lived in County Antrim. Yeah, I'd say that you know that there there has been and, and our differences and and you know our our trouble is not glorious. Could it could it could it quote Snow Patrol? Okay, <laughs> I, I'll I'll quote it in this. And the lyrics in one of the most latest songs was, uh, "Let Let's be honest, um, um, our our experiences are different. Uh, we're, we're we're all to blame, but let's just leave it at that." I mean, we can go through our past and pick holes in each, in each other's identity and each other's past, but we're probably best leaving it there and saying, let's make sure we don't repeat those issues by looking forward to how we can do better. And I would like to think that the next generation of people growing up in Northern Ireland have a much better experience than those of us, of our generation, who had to grow up in the troubles and are lived in the latter years of our life in a peace-free uh, island. Let's make sure that um, the next generation goes forward living in a troubled and peaceful Ireland as well. Ian, do you understand the difficulties that nationalism has with events to celebrate and mark the centenary? Given what we're only after um, speaking about. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I have never asked and I don't ask anyone to um, uh, be forced upon them a celebration that they don't want to have. I mean, I, I, the last decade has been fascinating for these islands because the last decade we marked with respect the 100 years since the end of the Great War. Um, we, we marked with respect the 100 years of the creation of the Republic of Ireland, ultimately. Um, so there, there's been all of, all of that. There's 100 years marked in 2016 of the Easter Rising. It, it, it's a shared and difficult history. And it, it's, it's a, a history that does cause problems. But I, I'm very much, as a person who's trained in history and took my degree in history, understanding of our past and understanding our history is critical to us understanding where we want the future to be. And to, to learn from it is, is what we've got to be able to lift. And I, I, I certainly would uh, encourage um, uh, people to learn from their past and understand their past so they don't either A, repeat the mistakes of the past or lift the good of the past and make sure that those good things are repeated. Mm-hmm. Kyle, or sorry, Kyle, <laughs> Ian, um, we're coming to the end here. And um, the reason why I mentioned your brother, Kyle, there is he actually submitted two questions for you. So um, I, I think they're pretty good ones. The first one is, who has been the best prime minister for the North in your lifetime? Um, the best British Prime Minister for Northern Ireland yeah. um, in, in my lifetime obviously I think Tony Blair has had a very significant impact mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of, 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 of the role he played as to for a shorter period of time did uh, John Major 
So those two probably had the very significant impact from 1992 to 97 and from 1997 uh, then with Blair on to 2008 nine, I think it was. Um, so, you know, I think between them, they have collectively had a very, very powerful impact because of, of how they were thrown in at the deep end of the troubles and helped Northern Ireland get out of the troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying uncontroversially help them get out, but they, they certainly did. So I think between them, those two would probably share the uh, the, 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 the actual spoils of, of that prize, if it is a prize. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next question from your twin brother, Ken. <laughs> what Taoiseach has shown the best understanding of the feelings of unionists, in your opinion? In a heartbeat, and the Kenny. Okay. Why? Pardon? Uh, why is this? Um, he, he, he grasped the nuances better. I mean, I, I was very, very close to and worked very close with Bertie Hearn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think on the on the fall of it, if we were taking a, 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 a person who, who got North Northern Ireland even better, and knew what a settled position was, and a person who actually, I think, could have brought Ireland and the EU through the Brexit negotiations a heck of a lot better than Leo Varadkar, and the Kenny, in my view, was that actual person. Um, he, he just got it. He was a crafty boy, and he understand he understood nuance very, very well. So I would, I would give him the, the actual plaudits on that. Okay. Who inspires you, Ian, and why? Um... Well, it's actually um, people around me, people who, are, who wouldn't be known for very public. So obviously, I mean, there's members of my family that inspire me and encourage me. Uh, my mother's a very inspirational figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I I do have a view that, you know, meeting your heroes is always laced with danger. <laughs> yes. But I have the joy of meeting my, my hero, Joey Dunlop. That's just how I feel you, meeting you today, Ian. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> and my, my, my sporting hero, hero was Joey Dunlop. I was ported up in my house, and I it was just one of those things that he was very quiet, very understated, mm-hmm. but he made his biking do the talking. Yes. And um, I think that, uh, to me, there's a lot to be taken out of that. Um, I remember once uh, making a speech of which he was listening, and I, I told him that, motorcycling and politics are identical and he said it's not and I says it is Joey because once you get in front you have to stay in front <laughs> and he laughed at that and he said I see I see where you're coming from very good so get get in front and stay in front with Joey that's my you, you're a motorbike enthusiast yourself and I think you have one or two do you I do indeed yes yeah 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 it's, it's hard a to huge be- huge motorcycle fan yeah it's hard to be getting out on the on the, the open roads, at, 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 at not much beats that film. Absolutely. Ian, a sense I, of freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ian, if you could be anyone for just one day, who would it be and why? Anyone for just one day? Yeah, alive or dead. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, one of the ones, that's one of the ones which really does stump you because there's so many, you know. I know. You know, I know. If you if 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 if, if you could, um, well, sure. I'll tell you what. You how how about this? We can hold your answer, and we'll speak to you again, maybe in six or eight months' time. <laughs> how about that? That sounds that sounds like a plan and a, and a, and a good negotiation tactic. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've got one last awkward question for you, and this is the one that most yep. most of our guests fear most. 
if you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Now, I appreciate, as you're only after saying there, you could invite hundreds. So, you know, don't worry about it. Just fire out, I suppose, three names that spring to mind just. Right, well, I'll, I'll have to say Joey. Uh, yes. He'll, he'll have to be there. Um, um, I, I'll have to say, I mean, it was not a, a really good, I'd say Winston Churchill would okay. be a great person of Bonhamie at such a party. And Ian, and, I'm um, going to stop you if you don't mind, because I want to give you the same respect as I give all our guests. I would urge you to invite a female, because um, if you don't, you um, you could be accused of being sexist. Well, it's very, very funny because the, the person was going to bring, the third person was going to bring, was going to be my mother oh, very for the good. very obvious reasons that uh, she is such she, she, she um, has such an expertise and we hold all those boys to account far better than I do. <laughs> very good. That's, that's quite an interesting dinner party. It definitely is. Ian, I promise you this is the last question for you because you've been very kind with your time today and I really appreciate that. Just on the current circumstances, Ian, obviously there's been a lot of rioting happening for the past several nights and there's different reasons being given why. Uh, there, there could be a mixture of reasons. It could be got to do with um, the whole Bobby Story funeral. It could be got to do with the protocol. It could be got to do with maybe... Arlene's words, having no faith in um, PSNI leadership. So, listen, who knows? What what needs to be done, Ian, to settle tensions down? Well, we need to address the causation factors of the discontent. And, and you put your finger on some of those things to do with a, a community that is discontented with where they are. Now, when we, when we draw back from it, we have a community that potentially sits on the edge of being able to flourish and flourish brilliantly. So how do we get them into that space to recognise the positive of where they need to be? So I, I think that we've got to address the causes of discontent. Now, I would urge the Prime Minister to immediately take steps about saying, well, one of the big issues is this protocol. Let's freeze it. Let's stand it still. Let's try and take that issue out of the out of the political equation, the calm motives down. Let's try and address this issue then to do with the impartial upholding of law and order. And I also think that pre good press reporting and honest press reporting has got to be there. So we've got to be able to say things that are difficult, but listen to those difficult things being said and then react to them, as opposed to just putting people in corners and saying horrible things about them. So, you know, there's there, there's there's a collective actions that need to be done, uh, which are which some will be more long-term, some will have immediate effect and immediate impact, and certainly addressing the issue of law and order and firm policing, but at the same time responding positively to the concerns of people about unfair policing and addressing the issue of the protocol, in my view, would be two major steps that could be taken. Do, do you think also, Ian, that some of the comments and language used by um, unionism, particularly political unionism, has helped stir up tensions, or would you refute uh, that? Well, I I, 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 do refute in this basis that you know what everything that can be said can can, can be regarded as political rhetoric. I, mean, I, I listened this morning to the middle of the road um, leader of the Alliance Party who made a claim on one breath saying we've got to all be calm in what we say. Mm. And in the very next sentence said, and of course, unions have been absolute liars over the issue of Brexit. Mm -hmm. So let's be calm, but then let's accuse people of being liars. Yes, <laughs> You know, we could all take uh, offence 
And in, there's people who are professional at this who get up in the morning to take professional offence at the other community. We've got to just dial that down and say, look, there's going to be things that are said. We're all big enough and ugly enough to understand each other and to actually take on board some of these things that are said. Mm-hmm. Let's do that and let's address the issues, not the words. And the issues are, in my view, the policing issue and the issue to do with um, the protocol. They're massive in the unionist community. I've been saying it for months now. And the sooner um, the authorities get on top of it, the better. Ian, I've really enjoyed um, chatting to you today. And as the saying goes, talking never hurt anyone. And I don't think any of the two of us got offended by anything that was said here today. Um, You're a very busy man. You're an MP. Your time is more precious than mine. So thank you for giving me over an hour of your time today. It's much appreciated. And I'll just leave you. you. I'll leave you with a last word if you would like to say anything. Well, now, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about the things that we do share and our ability to even share different opinions. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting to you and best wishes with the programme. I hope you're able to splice it all together and make me sound brilliant. (laughs) Making you sound brilliant, that could be a bigger task, Ian. (laughs) I'm only joking. No. You're you're up to it, Sam. You're up to it. (laughs) No, thank you very much, Ian. Um, Listen, folks, hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you do, um, a comment and a retweet would be appreciated. Sorry, Ian, just before you go, are you going to come back and join us on Twitter? No, definitely not. I enjoyed my time away from it so much. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yes, that, that's enough. I would say to everyone on Twitter, come off it for six months and you will realise that there's no point ever going back. Yeah, it, it definitely can have a, a, an adverse effect on it's our poisonous. mental health. It's very, it's very, very poisonous. I think even on, even on just your social interaction with yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, I find it a really poisonous platform. You know, I had about 20,000 followers uh, when I started it up. And I think 19,999 of them thought I was an absolute horrible person <laughs> and what the other person could have gone either way. Yes. I mean, <laughs> and you're, just, you're just living in that poison the whole time. And, and I, I just think that if you come off that platform for a while and realise that real-life opinion is so much different. I mean, yeah. People sitting in a house and scrolling for hours yes, instead of true. talking to each other. I, it's, it's madness. It's very true. Hey. And, and even looking, you know, if you go out to a pub or a restaurant, it's that long ago since we, either of us done that. But, uh, you know, you can see people sitting, instead of you, say, interacting with each other, their heads buried in the phone. Yeah, it's bonkers. Yeah, it is. Listen, that's a whole other conversation, so um, I will leave it there. Thanks again, Ian. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Sure,